Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. So we're in Parshat Mishpati, which we just heard done beautifully by Lev Kligfeld. Um, for those of you who didn't know, Lev's Parsha is the same Parsha as Aiden Kligfeld. And uh, one of my favorite stories is that I got to teach Aiden Kligfeld her bat mitzvah Haftorah. Uh, and so I was, it was very sweet to see Lev reading the same Parsha Torah. <clears throat> okay, so fun echo happening. We are going to look at the end of Parshat Mishpatim. So we're going to be in Exodus 24, chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 9 through 18. I actually thought about not bringing commentaries at all because there's just so much that we could look at in just the verses themselves um, that I, I thought that maybe the commentaries would be extraneous to a certain extent, but there were a few that were really beautiful and I wanted to be able to share them. So we're going to look at two of the of these nine-ish verses here. And though we'll read all of them, I want us really to focus in on two specifically. We're going to focus in on verse 10, and we're going to focus in on verse 12. So I'll pass these around. If, you're, if you came in a pair and you're comfortable sharing, um, that would be wonderful, just so that there's enough. I have 15 copies, so it, they should be able to be shared um, so for some of these, I'll read Hebrew and English, and for others, I'll just read the English, uh, depending on what we're going to be focus on, <clears throat> focusing on. So the first verse, verse 9 of chapter 24 says, sorry, I have to hold it closer to my face. Right, BK, there's one there. Vayal Moshe ve'aharon, Nadav ve'avihu ve'shiv'im mizikneh Yisrael. So Moses and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu, sorry, I didn't change the English poor writing of their names there, and 70 elders of Israel went up. Okay, so that's just saying all the all the different people who went up the mountain. Again, we're at the end of Mishpatim, so we're we're past all of the all of the, the different rules that we're going to get, and now we're we're having these intimate relational moments um, between mostly Moses and Aaron and God, but but also all the people and uh, the divine. So here's one of the two verses that we're, I'm going to have us really focus on. Vayiru et Elohei Israel v'tachat raglav kemaselivnat ha sapir uche etzem hashemaim letohar. So they saw all those people that we just mentioned, the God of Israel, and underneath God's feet there was this thing that looked like a pavement or some kind of ground of sapphire. So sapir here is the word for sapphire, which makes sense. Uche etzem Hashemaim let la tohar. And the, the look of it was just like the sky of purity. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have no idea what that could possibly mean. I know what a sapphire is, and I know what a sapphire looks like. I'm not sure what a sky of purity is. Could it mean a sky without clouds? Sure. That would be a clear sky. I don't know what a sky of purity really is. Um, and it's interesting that at all they're seeing God, right? We know from moments before this part of our Torah that God is not making God's self readily available in, in you know, physical form to people. So it's interesting that, first of all, it's not just Moshe. It's Moshe and Aaron and Adav and Avihu and 70 elders. It's a whole crew, 
right? So it's not just, oh, I'm going to have this intimate moment with you and it's just me. It's a whole, a whole audience of people who get to have this intimate moment with God. So that was what first caught my eye. <clears throat> the next verse I'm just going to read in English. Yet God did not raise God's hand against the leaders of the Israelites. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. The next verse is the second one that, I, that we're going to focus on. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe. So God said to Moshe, Ale Eli Hahara, so when I was taking, uh, I don't actually remember what the class was called, but a class with Sioni Zevet, one of the things that he mentioned was that when it says hahara or daroma, it means towards the mountain. So interesting here that, that the translation says on the mountain, when really what we are imagining is that they're going towards the mountain or as Zioni Zevit would say, mountain word. Don't ever say that because no one will have any idea what you're talking about unless you went to rabbinical school. So come up, what? Sure. Come up to me, God, on the mountain or mountain word and wait there. Um, oh, we lost to Zoom. So hold on one second. We're back. Okay. <laughs> you got to... You got to miss out on a grammar moment, which is always fun. And I will give you the stone tablets with the teachings and commandments, which I have inscribed to instruct them. So for conservative Jews who spend some time talking about the documentary hypothesis, this is actually quite interesting because we're seeing here that there is evidence might be a strong word, but some evidence for the fact that things were written down by God and then given to Moshe Aaron and the whole crew that came with them. So I'm just going to read it one more time in the Hebrew since we got cut off for a second. So I will, uh, and I will give to you these, these, um, tablets of stone, the Torah and the Torah, the Hamitzvah and the commandment. Interesting. That's not plural, but okay. That I have inscribed so that you can teach it to them. The next part I'm going to, I'm going to read in English. So just keep in mind those two verses that if you're looking at the source sheet are in yellow, um, or the two that I read both in Hebrew and in English. So Moses and his attendant Joshua arose and Moses ascended the mountain of God to the elders. He had said, wait here for us until we return to you. You have Aaron and Hur with you. Uh, let anyone who has a legal matter approach them. When Moses had ascended the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. The presence of Adonai abode on Mount Sinai and the cloud hid it for six days. On the seventh day, God called to Moshe from the midst of the cloud. Interesting that's on the seventh day. Now the presence of Adonai appeared in the sight of the Israelites as a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Moses went inside and the cloud inside the cloud and ascended the mountain and Moses remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay. So then the next parsha begins. So the, the end of this, we, we know quite well, right? We know 40 days, 40 nights business, and we know the cloud, um, the, the cloud piece. The other, the other thing that I was going to focus on if we had had more time, which we don't, so I'm not going to, but this idea that it's hidden for six days and then revealed on the seventh, there is a beautiful drush in there somewhere about Shabbat, right? That we, that we somehow are going about our lives for six days. Therefore, certain aspects of maybe our spirituality, the divine, et cetera, et cetera, are hidden to us for six days. And then on the seventh day, we really focus on it. My teacher, Reb Mimi, I'm talking a lot about rabbinical school today. My teacher, Reb Mimi, always talked about how anything that you do during the six days of the week are in preparation for Shabbat. So if you bought a new piece of fruit or if you bought a new outfit, et cetera, et cetera, it is something that you should look forward to utilizing or 
or um, admiring on Shabbat. So that came, that teaching came to me here in this, in this text as well. Okay, kushiot. So any questions that you might have about this particular, these particular two verses that we're focusing on. So again, for those of you who are on Zoom, chapter 24, verse 10 or verse 12, and I should say verse 12. Thoughts? Larry will have a thought, so I'll call on him in a second, but if anybody else has any, <laughs> has any thoughts <clears throat> or questions. Oh yeah, Tybal, go ahead. I don't know if you're able to unmute, but you can try. There you go. Um, only because you just prompted. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you first started talking about what was going on, mm-hmm. if someone didn't know, it almost sounded as if it would be like Devarim, what was going on in Devarim, but we're not in Devarim. I just thought that was just the way you described it about what was going on. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, there is an Aaron in the same thing. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, you said you were going to wait. How can I firstborn leave you a teacher waiting? Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it is interesting that a lot of Deuteronomy is somehow connected or repeated or or references back to other pieces of our Torah. So it's very possible that this is um, repeated later on and then is reminding you of a piece of Devarim. Larry, I, how did I know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, verse 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Great. So... For those of you who are on Zoom, I'm just going to very simply state what uh, what Larry just mentioned, and I'm going to go backwards. So the, the second thing that he said is that he's interested in verse 14 and how the fact that Moshe says, why don't you stay here and these guys will, will respond to you, um, but they're going to they're gonna come to you. Uh, and, and interesting that that's kind of, you know, because we read Yitro this morning, I have Yitro very closely in mind as well. This is like exactly what Yitro was telling Moshe should happen, right? So we don't actually hear that Moshe takes his advice, but here it seems he has, which is not what Larry said. I'm adding my own little commentary. Uh, oh, but it, well, we don't see him. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I won't repeat that for the people on Zoom. Um, but the second piece that, that Larry said first was how interesting it is that it makes not only mention that they are seeing God, but the fact that there's description of how they see God, the, the feet of God, the here it's, you know, color and type of um, gemstone potentially, if it actually was sapphire, just looked like sapphire. So how interesting it is that that's, that that's a part of this narrative when we know that we're not supposed to be seeing the likeness of God. Rabbi BK. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So Rabbi BK just asked a question that I also wondered. And so I brought um, a piece from our Gemara to to look at as the last text for today. So, you know, once my teacher, I guess I I gained something from his learning to be able to have the same questions. Um, But what he mentioned was that there's a lot of redundancy in the types of things that that were written down. Right. So we see here, Luchota Evan, Vehatora, Vehamitzvah. Why does it have to say all three separate things? Do they mean separate things? Why are we so specific uh, to to the things that are then going to be taught. Bob, did I see your hand? Yeah. A very interesting point. So Bob made mention to the fact that in verses 10 and 11, verse 10 says that we saw God knowing that that's not a thing we're supposed to do. And in verse 11, not only does God not say you weren't supposed to do that, but there's a certain kind of celebration and acknowledgement in festivity around the fact that they did see God. Um, I'm just going to leave that. I, there's, there's a lot to say about it. Tom and then Joel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. This is what our feet looked like. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. So Tom just, in very true author form, <laughs> Tom, Tom just pointed out that if you were going to describe something that you saw, you wouldn't just describe the thing that's under their feet, you would describe them. So he used the example of if I saw Rebecca, that's me, and someone said, what did, what did she look like? They wouldn't describe what was under my feet or even my feet. They would describe everything that, um, that I look like. So it's a, that's a very, it's a very interesting way of seeing this, that, that not only does our Torah say that God, that they saw God, but it jumps very quickly. There's even an etnachta there, which means that, you know, there, there's also a break in the understanding of the text that they saw God. And then very quickly they make, make mention to, oh, but they looked, they looked underneath, uh, underneath God's feet, whatever that means for God. And they saw what was, what God was standing on. Um, it makes me think of when you, when you, when you're looking at someone and you, whether or not, especially with masks now, I feel like this happens all the time that you can't necessarily tell who somebody is. And so you stare at them and you think that maybe you know who they are and then they make eye contact and you realize they are not the person you thought they are. And you very quickly look away because <laughs> you're now embarrassed that you've stared to try to figure out who they are and it's not them. Um, I think I saw another hand and then I'll go to the people on zoom. Joel. Yeah. Right. So Joel's bringing up the passage in Shemot that, um, that where Moshe is told that he cannot see God. And then there's a midrash that, that not only can, can God not be seen, but that which Moses saw of God was just the, the his back and, uh, the box of tefillin. And, um, our commentators actually comment on that when they're commenting on this part of Torah here in Mishpatim. They say, oh, we know from before that God actually wasn't supposed to be seen by Moshe because of, not because of the Midrash, but, but because of that moment. Um, how do I compare them? I, I hadn't thought of what Tom said uh, until he shared it, but it is interesting that that seems to be a real interest in actually seeing God. Right? There seems to be some kind of interest in truly getting to see all of God's physicality, all of God's likeness. Here it just seems to be what happens. It doesn't seem to be the, the reason for them approaching God. It just seems to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a result. It seems to be a result of the, of the encounter. So I don't know if that intentionality makes it different or the fact that they weren't actually looking to, you know, whether it was to see into God's face or to see, to be able to do as Tom mentioned, you know, explain exactly the different pieces of God. I'm not sure. So it's a really good point. And again, again, that's what the the commentators also pick up on when they're, when they read this verse. Okay. Our Zoomers, Alan. Uh, lots of questions and some have already been, been addressed, but uh, the one that stands out the most for me is the whole notion of that you've got 72 people, excuse me, 74 people. You've got the 70 elders, and Moses is Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. That's the only time they're mentioned to seeing God and not mentioned anything else. And they bring in her, another party who is not even designated by name. Mm-hmm. And all of these people see God. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was only supposed to be Moses who couldn't even see God. And now 70 people are seeing, 74 people are seeing God in this experience. Mm-hmm. It, it's mind-boggling. This, this section has always troubled me, the eating and drinking. And it's like going to a picnic. Oh, and we're going to see God on the way. 
the 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 other thing that particularly surprises me is the reference to the stone tablets and the additional teachings. Yeah. We just had Moses receiving the tablets one parsha before. Mm-hmm. And so what are these tablets referring to? Mm-hmm. Great. We're going to answer that question with a commentary in just a few minutes. Okay. Joanna. <laughs> um, so in this morning's Parsha, we had the expression um, seeing thunder, right? And there's a lot about like how you can. It's great. Ro'im eta koloten vehalapidim. And so... You can't see thunder, and it's in a verse that's describing the nature of the overwhelming experience of being at Sinai. Mm-hmm. So I wonder here, too, if seeing should be understood a bit metaphorically mm-hmm. um, and not taken so literally. And the other thing that I'm struck by is, I think it's somewhere later, I don't think it yet but somewhere when when we talk about seeing god it's an explicit reference to seeing the face of god mm-hmm. so it's interesting when we talk about you know having seen god's feet or having seen god's back it's not seeing god face to face and the other thing that strikes me is i think you mentioned it was tom who talked about how Tom would describe you if he saw you, but that's assuming two people on, you know, an equal plane. So if you're looking up to God, then the first thing you might see would be God's feet in, you know, in a, in an exact picture of that. Mm -hmm. And then the description of God having seen, of Moses having seen God's back would mean that Moses was even closer in that moment. Um, so I think it's, you know, sort of an interesting thing to think about yeah. these metaphors of what parts of God are being seen. Yeah, it depends on your perspective, right? Especially when we talk about little kids looking up to people, right? What, how do they see you? And it's a very different way than an adult sees you because they can look to you, you know, uh, making eye contact, which is why they tell educators to get down to, to talk to a little kid because you should be able to look them face to face. They shouldn't be looking at, you know, your knees while you're talking to them. Um, you said something else that was so, oh, the scene. So, yes, that piece of Torah that you mentioned from Yitro it is so interesting. And my favorite um, my favorite aspect of it is that it's not just seeing, but it's really understanding. Here, I I think that you you could totally be right. It's not for me to say that you're wrong because it's Torah and I don't know it any better than you do. But I think that there is something here that that is really speaking to the site because then we start to talk about the likeness of a sapphire, this, that, and the other thing. There's some there's something very um, visual or visually artistic about right. There's no there, it's not a feeling. I don't I don't feel the sapphire. I don't. It doesn't right. So you could be totally right, and I think those two things can be separated out based on based on the, um, the the relationship to the events potentially brand and then table I see your hand but because of the time we're gonna we're gonna move on Brent go ahead All right I just want to point out that the trans the text that I'm looking at is an interlinear Humash mm-hmm. and by art scroll and and it says in reference to this very holy activity when they talk about seeing God they use the translation yet they ate and drank. And all I'm saying is when you look at the translation, yet they ate and drank, that implies to me 
that there's something wrong with the mundane nature of of the of the yet they ate and drank in the presence of all these other lines that mm-hmm. deal with a very holy process. Yeah, I, it 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 could be yet. I don't think I'm the first person to say that I don't I'm not great at grammar, but I don't think that it actually is definitively yet uh, in the way that it's written in the Hebrew. Um, yeah, it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Right. So I think that there's something, there's something to that translation that's trying to give you a certain kind of interpretation, I think. Um, whereas though we know that Vav could be and or but, right, we, that here it, it also could be and. So again, similar to what I said to Joanna, like I'm not here to tell you that you're wrong, but it could be that, that that's trying to tell you something to read into a little bit more than it actually is um, by just by just saying that it could be and. Okay, let's look at a few commentaries. So if you turn the page, I, I put the different commentaries on, on the two different pages. So verse 10 is on one page and verse 12 commentaries are on the other page. I'm, I think we're going to only, well, we'll see how we do on time, but we might only pick one of each. Um, all right. So the, okay, let's read the Rashi. So the Rashi on Viruet Elohei Yisrael, right? They saw the God of Israel. They gazed intently and failing in this, they peeped in their attempt to catch a glimpse of the supreme being and thereby made themselves liable to death. So again, going back to Joel and a few others of you who have um, made reference to the fact that we know that God is not supposed to be seen. The fact that they now looked so intently at God, it's interesting that they knew that that was going to come with punishment. But it was only because God did not wish to disturb the joy caused by the giving of the Torah that God, sorry, I didn't change that, did not punish them instantly, but waited for Nadav and Avihu until the day when the tabernacle was dedicated, when they were stricken with death. So I don't love this as a reason for Nadav and Avihu to die because, first of all, it's not their fault. <laughs> but second of all, um, it it is interesting that it now gives us a reason, right? When Adav and Avihu um, are killed, there isn't, the commentators come up with a bunch of reasons why they could have died, but there's not really any in, textual basis for their death uh, other than the fact that they, that they died um, by making basically a mistake. Those aren't the exact words, but but here, what it's saying is that God did not want to disturb this moment of real joy, right? There was a better thing happening here to, to make sure that that could, that could happen and we'll put aside the punishment. I don't know how many of you have been around kids having tantrums, but if a kid is having a tantrum in a moment where whether you're at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, you're just at a family gathering, it might not be worth it to have a whole sit down with that kid and go over the punishment that they're now going to receive because you do want them to stay at the table or you do, you yourself want to still be part of the celebration that's happening in the house. So then you talk to the kid later and you say, you know, that wasn't behavior that we show when we're around guests or during an event or what, you know, whatever the, the case may be. And that seems to be, to me, what Rashi is indicating God does here, that, yes, it was, it was a mistake for them to see God. And this was a moment in which that was not the biggest deal. 
it was a bigger deal that they received Torah, understand why they had received Torah, celebrate the receiving of the Torah. And then again, I don't agree with the, the people who got the, the punishment, but then the punishment would come later when there wasn't something so important going on. Does that sit well with people? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Yeah, Bob. Right, right. <laughs> Bob just said, well, there's 70 other people. Exactly. Yeah. So why Nadav and Avihu? Again, I think this is Rashi kind of trying to preemptively say, oh, this is why they died. The next part of the sentence. Yes. David's pointing out that the next part of the sentence says in the elders until the event of which the text relates and when the people. Wait, what? And for the. Oh, oh, yeah, but I picked up in the middle of the sentence, which is why I didn't understand it. Okay, so what David's pointing out is that it says that Ndav and Avihu will be um, punished, but then it says, and the elders, meaning this is also their punishment, where the text relates, when the people complained, the fire of the Lord burned among them and destroyed. Um, but I think that, well, okay. Okay, great. So the elders seem to, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to repeat for you the whole back and forth that just happened, but the, it seems to be that the elders are also punished. <clears throat> Any other thoughts on this piece? Yeah, Joel. Right. Fire, right. Right. Right, correct. So so that's what I was referring to before. That you know, what Joel just said is, well, we're told that they brought a strange fire, Nadav and Avihu, so that's why they died. But I think that if you go back to that text, the commentators say, Well, what does strange fire mean? And then they start to drosh out what it means. I think that Rashi is kind of preemptively saying, Well, this is what I think it means. Um but yes, you are completely correct that, that, that we are given a reason. It's just not a detailed reason. Other thoughts or comments? Okay, we'll read one more on this verse. Um, okay, this forno here. Oh, well, Joel, look at the Rashbam. I'm not going to read it, but read the Rashbam. Sforno <laughs> um, says here, an essence totally transparent, devoid of colors and permanent contours, so that it is almost completely abstract, capable of absorbing spiritual input from spiritual domains at will. I loved this because I think similar to what Tom was saying, though he said it much more eloquently than I was thinking it, there, the focus on what is seen is so specific that, you know, why a sapphire? Why not something else? And here what Sforno's doing is he's explaining why that description, right? Totally transparent, devoid of color. And all I could think about is we're not supposed to depict God in any kind of visual. And so how beautiful is it that that which we see, whether it is God or underneath God, is something that we get to interpret. We get to define what that looks like because it's transparent such that it is reflecting that which is underneath it, above it, or that which we're seeing. And if I could go so far as to bring in the mirrors midrash from later, could it be that when, when a person looked at it, they actually saw themselves? And so what does that say about potentially them seeing themselves in the image quite, quite literally of God? That's a drosh. That's not what Sforno's saying, but that's what I read into this, into this commentary. Okay, we're going to jump to verse 12. So just flip the page over here. I brought you a lot of material, so I'm sorry that I'm, I'm kind of, kind of rushing through it here. Um, okay, we're going to read the Ibn Ezra and then we're going to read, read the Brachot part, but don't read the Talmud piece yet. Cause it's really good and I don't want you to read it. Okay, Ibn Ezra. So <laughs> don't read it. 
RBK, don't um, and be, and be there until I give you the tab the tablets. It's supposed to say sorry of stone and the law, etc. A Spanish sage said that the first tablets, which were the work of God, which means they were finished by God, were created the same size as the ark. The second tablets also were the work of God, who is the one who created everything. However, Moses finished the second tablets. A finished product is called a work. We thus read, and he hastened to, to really to, to do it. The sage said this is this because scripture reads table tablets of stone and does not employ the term stones as it does in reference to the second tablets. It's talking about the plural here. But I think something that for those of you who are artists or appreciate art, one thing that this seems to be saying is that, sure, you can you can create something, but unless you're the person who really finishes it and puts it all together or in modern day puts it out for display, it's not really known. It's not known to be art. It's not finished yet. It's not appreciated. And so I appreciate what Ibn Ezra does here, that even though the, the Torah is saying that that there is that there is much that God is doing alone in the creation of these works, that it's really about the fact that Moshe had a hand, no pun intended, in the actual completion of these, specifically they're talking here about the tablets. Any thoughts on this or comments on this? Anybody else? Have, yeah, Larry. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's that's a very interesting point and one that, you know, when we look, one of Alan's favorite um, pieces of Torah is that Loba Shamaim here, right? When we start to talk about that, that that there is something to be said that Moshe, not only Moshe himself, but but people in general have constantly had a hand in in that which has been passed down to us as as Torah. Um, And so what does it mean for it to have been a finished product and then given to Moshe as opposed to this is a product that I would like your input on and let's collaborate to finish it together. Yeah. A writer's meeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, because I think that part of what caught my eye was the fact that we don't often like to, um, to talk about how the Torah was written, right? We don't, we don't often want to say, Oh, definitively God wrote it or definitively, definitively Moshe wrote it or definitively people wrote it because we want to believe like you're just saying that we have some kind of agency around the Torah that we have. And why are certain things written in it? And why do we learn certain passages? Um, So yeah, I guess I, I hadn't thought of the title based on what you just said, but yeah, I guess that that does definitely play into it in terms of, um, the way in which we see our relationship with Moshe in the, in the quote writing process. Okay. This Bracho text, uh, I, I really, really enjoy. And that doesn't mean that you all will, but I really enjoyed it. So I hope that you will. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to just read it in the English. Just as a reminder, when we read Gemara in, in the English, um, that has been taken from Safaria, the bolded pieces are that which are actually the original and the, the non bolded pieces are, um, just general English to help us understand the text better, sometimes commentary, sometimes just filler words. So just keep that in mind as we're reading. And Rabbi, Le- Rabbi Levi Barchama said that Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said, God said to Moses, ascend to me on the mountain and be here, and I will give you the stone tablets and the Torah and the mitzvah that I have written t- that you may teach them. 
meaning, there's a commentary by Steinsaltz, that God revealed to Moshe not only the written Torah, but all of the Torah, as it would be transmitted through the generations. Okay, this is, I really like breakdowns and charts and to-do lists, and so I really appreciated this brachot piece. The tablets are the Ten Commandments that were written on the tablets of the covenant. The Torah is the five books of Moshe. The mitzvah is the Mishnah, which includes explanations for the mitzvot and how they are to be performed. Quote that I have written refers to the prophets and the writings, nach, written with divine inspiration. Quote that you may teach them refers to the Talmud, which explains the Mishnah. These explanations are the foundation for the rulings of practical halacha. This verse teaches that all aspects of Torah were given to Moshe from Sinai. I think that this is, this goes back to Rabbi BK's question of why the different things were mentioned. And to us in 2022, how beautiful to imagine, even if they weren't all written in that moment, how beautiful to imagine that all of the foundation that we needed for all these different pieces of our tradition were given to us in a singular moment and in a moment where we had personal connection and intimacy with the divine. So even if it came from people, which is not the topic that we're discussing today, but even if it came from people, it came from a real intimacy with God, with those people. And so then we get it and we get to learn it and we get to grow from it. So I wanted to end on this because I hope that what we gain from this past week's Torah portion of getting the Ten Commandments, even the week before of standing at the precipice of, of the sea splitting and, and standing in our seats in Shul to be able to recognize that moment, that we in today's day get to see the, the little aspects of the Torah that we learn, the Torah that we teach, the Torah that we mundanely study that it all has some kind of divine connection, whether that's because it's bringing you closer to people or because it really is bringing you closer to God or to some kind of spiritual connection or because that week, that Torah, for some reason, just sounds so perfect for the life that you're living. There's something divine about that. And I think that this piece from Baracha really amplifies that and, and shows us that that is not just something that we've made up over time, but that it comes directly from our Torah. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.